We are fighting dreamers. Takami o mezashite fighting dreamers. Nari furi kamawazu fighting dreamers. Shinjiru ga mamani oi 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 please go my way. Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and strategies of old world order resistance it's not new world order resistance because i think that many of the orders that we face are actually older than we normally think and there is certainly a lot to be said for thinking of the things like capitalism arising you know 500 years ago 300 years ago whatever certain things have happened uh data capitalism is happening now Climate change is happening now. All kinds of new things are happening and the world is changing and we need to adapt our framework all the time. But another direction in which we need to adapt our framework is to move it back further into the past. And that's one of the concerns, one of the big concerns of this podcast, isn't it? Another thing that I think I'm always doing is sort of translating between various kinds of spiritual vocabularies and various kinds of dialectical materialist uh, socialist vocabularies. So this time I'm talking about a kind of liberalism, kind of liberalism. Uh, this We're not in the distant past, mostly, here. Uh, we're talking about a short story by Adiyoshi Sawako, who's a very, very interesting kind of uh, also glow-in-the-dark figure of post-war Japan. But she writes a, a short story. I mean, she has a distinguished literary career, uh, but her, and I'll get into her biography in a minute, but let me just say that we're going to do uh, the story Eguchi no Sato, so um, the village of Eguchi, uh, which is about a Catholic priest and the immediate post-war, and he's dealing with communists, he's dealing with his bishop, he's dealing with his demanding parishioners, who are Japanese Catholics who have a, a unique brand of uh, kind of demanding kind of, uh, you know, the zeal of the convert, perhaps. Even though there are many very old Catholic families in Japan, there's still, you can imagine, being such a minority, uh, there's a, quite a complex um, set of complexes there. But... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an embodiment of a kind of liberalism that was definitely being promoted in the immediate post-war, and Adiyoshi Sawako is a writer who has very intense establishment ties. And so you can really see this as a kind of cultural um, Congress of Cultural Freedom product here, uh, recommending a kind of spirit of tolerance right? The biggest lesson is just like, oh, don't try too hard at anything. And, and the the sort of locus classicus that's provided from the Japanese literary tradition is the no play Eguchi, uh, or at least a, a Nihon Buyo version of that, because Adiyoshi Sawako was very interested, uh, connected to the Nihon Buyo uh, dancing world. Uh, that kind of uh, traditional theater and stuff is still today connected closely to the world of high finance and uh, big business and uh, other things that we would be really interested in in this podcast. Uh, and as I have seen in my life, uh, you know, as a young uh, grad student 
a white male in Tokyo. Uh, one attracts a lot of attention from people who like to think that they have a little Donald Keene, uh, you know, uh, that they can, you know, bounce their ideas about traditional culture off of and, and get uh, approbation of, uh, you know, so it's this whole complicated uh, honorary whiteness of Japan, which we always talk about, too. That's ex extremely important here. So basically the point is just this kind of liberalism, uh, right? This priest is basically just saying, yeah, it's a spirit of tolerance. It's a spirit of tolerance and, you know, just don't try too hard and uh, things will be fine. You know, abandon all, abandon all ideals. We got to just understand that things are, you know, we've just seen the entire world burned down when capital was threatened, when the ruling class was truly threatened and it looked like capitalism was going to collapse they deliberately unleashed all the mechanisms of decay and destruction that lie at the core of capitalist development in the first place, but they used them as a deliberate weapon directed straight at the working class. Basically, if capitalism was going to collapse, then they were just going to kill us all. You know, And I really think that's kind of the... That's one of the best definitions of fascism for me. It was just a big thing on the internet recently that you know with the ongoing uh, whitewashing of the azov battalion in ukraine uh now japan is uh you know and, the, and they were trying to do this judo flip where they were saying uh you know fascism was defeated in world war ii maybe this is standard kind of uh, american rhetoric of like oh yeah fascism what that was was not an inherent feature at the core of capitalism that finally came out uh, when it looked like capitalism was going to collapse. No, no, that was uh, just, uh, you know, some kind of demonic force that, that only arose once, and we defeated it now, and American liberalism defeated it, so it's gone forever, right? Uh, we discussed in our episode, Marx Failed to Consider, talking about Jesus of the Ruins by Ishikawa Jun, and talking about the labor struggles and the direct... Uh, production control, the workers taking over the factories in the aftermath of the defeat, right? Well, that was what people saw at first. You know, they knew that, they knew, but firsthand, the failure of capitalism, and capitalism was seen as deeply discredited. But very quickly, we have the birth of the Fourth Reich, and fascism and all of the far-right ideologues who had uh, brought us to that point were absorbed into the internet, fascist international, the Hidden Reich, the Underground Reich. And they, they went on to, we know this, I hope you know this, um, in, uh, there's, there's a real low level of consciousness in Japan about how bad it was in West Germany. They, there is a real kind of sense of self-flagellation here that, you know, it was just, oh, Japanese people's... Uh, you know, lack of lack of humanity is a is a thing that will come out. That's a phrase that will be in in this uh, reading today, right? A lack of humanity, a lack of uh, right. Somehow, the the national character of the Japanese was just flawed, and that's why they became not fascist but militarist, right? That's the standard American diagnosis, uh, the standard kind of post-war liberal diagnosis, and and even to this day. Even like very, uh, you know, like pretty much communists 
uh, on Twitter that I interact with, they still, people they criticize, they call them fake liberals. Fake liberals. Ese dibidar. Uh, for people who are what we would call in the English-speaking world today, uh, post-Trump, I think, is when that happened. They would, we would just call that a liberal, and a liberal is, con- is considered a bad thing to be, right? The actual communist definition of liberal has become hegemonic, and that's a huge victory, I think. That's a huge win. I think we should be happy about that. Um, you know, I try not to be annoying about it and just say it constantly, but I, I do try to... <laughs> say like when I can um, to a lot of people that I interact with that, you know, like uh, this is not fake liberalism. This is what liberalism actually is, right? There's a kind of, um, and I want to sort of sketch out like what is the difference between this and like antinomianism. We talk about, we think about like religious history here. Um, antinomianism, you will know, um, this is a patron episode, so um, you will know that I basically think that like really hardcore antinomian like Satanism is a kind of there's a there's a way in which that level of just direct uh, embrace of evil for its own sake is something that comes into being with the bourgeoisie. Uh, Now, there are antinomian religious movements like at the end of the Gupta dynasty in India Although you could say that's the end of the first really big round of uh, merchant capitalist development in India. You know, the real first kind of Silk Road there. Uh, Buddhism is born in that, and then that is falling, and you end up with these uh, tantric traditions, which uh, lose explicit, any kind of explicit antinomian character by the time they get to Japan. And it's just about, oh, we're doing rituals, we're doing smells and bells, and we're doing, you know, we're burning incense and, uh, you know, s- striking wood blocks and, and chanting mantras. And that accumulates uh, merit. And it's very much like, you know, just praying for the holy souls in purgatory or something like this. You know, it's not uh, yeah, there. And there are sort of like esoteric mountain rituals where we... Uh, smack a burning uh, torch against another burning torch and this is supposed to symbolize sexual intercourse and then we wear a backpack on our back to climb this mountain and go into this cave and that backpack is like ourselves as a fetal kind of we're returning into the womb Um, so ourselves are in this backpack that's like a, a fetus and and we're going to go inside the cave which is of the mountain which is like a womb and then we come out and it's like a rebirth. Um, but that's not the same as like, you know, deliberately uh, killing killing lots of people and making, you know, killing peasants and making carved uh, goblets out of their skulls and, and so on, right? This is pretty different. That's uh, the, the authentic kind of tantric Buddhist tradition, uh, which goes maybe as far as Tibet, uh, does seem to really have some serious antinomian features, right? Where we're doing, you know, cruelty we're doing, right? Um, human sacrifice, right? Um, but maybe those are, t- that, you could hypothesize that this happens at times of breakdown, normally decay, right? Uh, but modern capitalism grows off of decay, it's a it's a whole growth of decay. It's a whole period of, you could think of this as a whole period of tantric decay, 
of, of antinomian, uh, right, uh, weaponized, uh, just surfing, surfing a wave of societal collapse and human misery and suffering. We know this. This is what's happening right now every day. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And so, you know, I want to figure out here. I'm trying to think about this. Is, is liberalism this kind of tolerance? It's this kind of, oh, you know, there's nothing you can do anyway. And the real wisdom is to really just kind of embrace these things and be embrace being, uh, you, you would say, opportunist in kind of ML vocabulary, right? Being opportunist. Opportunism as a virtue. Opportunism as a virtue. And is that what Jesus really was saying, you know? That's pretty different, I think. That's a different thing. Um, antinomianism is a different thing. Uh, what Jesus was saying, he, you know, he is uh, also problematizing the law, right? Uh, not one jittle, jot or <laughs> a jot, not one jot or tittle of the law will ever disappear, right? Uh, but uh, at the same time, right, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the, he, uh, his whole, you know, in the Gospels, he has this whole program of the more important thing is your loving relationship with God as a father and so on. And Paul, of course, develops this even further, talking about how, you know, it isn't uh, Ephesians, maybe. It isn't about uh, keeping all these rules and laws and multiplying all these rules. Uh, that, no, it's, it's really much more about do you cause your brother to stumble or not, you know? And so that implies that there's a path that you're walking on, which is a separate thing from maybe obeying this or that rule, right? So there's a more important thing, like a loving relationship with God and your fellow man. There's a more important thing, like a path that you're walking on as opposed to, you know, checking boxes. Uh, there's something there, right, which is different. Um, paranomian. It's, it's going somewhere other than just laws, right? But, uh, but the law doesn't go away, right? And we don't, do, we don't do things opposite to the law. And we don't, uh, you know, cause people to stumble. We don't make, right? Like, and, and this uh, story that we have here is um, it's a real masterpiece of liberal post-war literature. And you can really, you can really feel it. So uh, there's so much here. There's so much here. Um, so I, when I lived down on the Key Peninsula, um, the first place that I lived in Japan, uh, I knew actually two different Vietnam War vets. One was kind of like Walter in uh, The Big Lebowski or something, I would say. And, and uh, he seemed to have been involved in... Uh, he said that he was involved in secret missions in Cambodia or whatever, but I, I sort of like said some of the things that he said to like a historian um, later when I was at grad school. And this guy was like a real serious historian of the Vietnam War. And he was kind of like, I would totally know about this guy if he had done anything like what you're saying. Um, now, maybe he was just a bourgeois historian who um, that's the kind of thing that he would by design not be known about but uh i don't know it's ambiguous he could have just been an old guy telling uh, tall tales um but then you have the the priest of the parish that i was going to and he was also a vietnam vet who did signals intelligence so 
maybe even more suspicious. He ended up, um, yeah, content warning. He committed suicide uh, by burning charcoal things in his car. Um, poor guy, I, I think. Um, and uh, But he told me that there is a thing where a lot of Japanese women um, who are Catholic, there's a, there's a whole pattern where uh, whatever the kinds of relationships they tend to have with their husbands and other men in their lives, uh, the, the priest takes on sometimes uh, this kind of like, you know, celebrate, celibate and safe uh, kind of emotional boyfriend that, that you can have at your beck and call at all times. And he once told me, I have to be real careful that I don't form any relationship like that because that's a pattern you can get into. Although, I mean, it's the same thing as like Carmela, the wife in The Sopranos and her relationship with the priest, right? I think anyone, at one point I was running out of my uh, scholarship money and I had to take on some English teaching students just right at the tail end of when you could still do this. I don't know if people still do this now. Uh, maybe starving students still do, but, you know, you can, uh, if you get introduced to somebody that's looking for this, you can uh, get together in a cafe for an hour and, you know, maybe make 3,000 yen. Uh, just talk to them in English. And that, too, becomes just a complete therapy session. It's all housewives that are um, kind of uh, looking for, you know, uh, various levels and kinds of sort of, uh, you know, place to put their uh, emotions of various kinds and, and places to get the things that they don't get from their uh, post-war uh, nuclear family with their husband and you know being a housewife and all of this um others oh, i mean my students i think were a variety of people but yeah it was always very very kind of psychoanalytical actually the actual content of these things so this story is about a priest who is depicted in a very exoticizing way and he's very exotic. He's this exotic foreigner. And also, it's so cool how he looks at us Japanese in this exotic way. And to him, we are an alien race. Um, you know, there's plenty of Japanese people who really love that kind of self-exoticization. We are so unique. We are so unique. And, and that's a big part of post-war discourse, right? Nihonjin Ron, the total uniqueness of Japan. And this would come into the, the idea of Japan, like Japan is not really fascist. Japan's not fascist, it's just really unique. And, and also maybe it's just that actually Japanese people have a uniquely bad character and they're not individualistic and they're too collectivistic. Um, and it's this kind of Hannah Arendt uh, banality of evil kind of thing. Um, but I think one of my theses here is that it's actually liberalism that is banal liberalism that's banal and we see that even today with the ukraine war all these banal liberals are just lining up to beat the drums and that's actually what uh fascism is on the one hand you know in, in the most extreme form okay um you can look at prolocult james has done a great it's called decay i think fascism as this moment of absolute managed decay at the end uh, when it really comes down to it and Basically, I would say the ruling class is deciding that they'll just kill us all, right? And that's part of what climate change is, too. 
they're just going to kill us all if they can't have their way, right? They're happy to do that. So whatever that means, yeah, we got to think about that, my relatives. Let's think about that. But then on the other hand, you have the softer fascism, which which is liberal uh, liberal social democracy, right? Uh, in, like in the post-war. And a lot of people know about the secret CIA money that went to founding the LDP, Jiu Minshuto, Jiminto, the ruling party in Japan. But also the Japanese Communist Party received these subsidies. Um, I have a book on that. I haven't gotten really into it very much, but um, that is what it promises to uh, argue, right? And you can see that even today. Shi Kazuo, the chairman of the JCP, is fully on board for any kind of provocation against China, any kind of provocation against Russia. He was just saying, you know, Putin is the continuation of the czar. He's the continuation of Stalin. He's uh, just the straight line of Russian uh, depravity and oriental despotism, you know, basically. Uh, you know, that last part is kind of under the, uh, between the lines, but just absolute um, liberal brain bullshit. And that's always, um, not always, you know, I mean, there was a robust kind of labor tradition, even more than there was in the United States, right? There was more to, to sort of break down that grew in the immediate post-war there, right? But it is, and, and neoliberalism arrived late here. It arrived late. And so, you know, in that other way, you can see the social fascism better, right? One of my points here is that social democracy is actually social fascism. And if you aren't going to change the relations of production, if you aren't going to overthrow capitalism, you're just going to redistribute. And it's even on like a very dictionary level here, right? Um, liberal equals leftist. And now to Shi Kazuo's marginal credit, he was at one point, he was saying in an interview sort of, some kind of panel, he said, you know, Kyosan, people were brought up the issue. Why doesn't the Japan, the Japanese Communist Party change their name? Because, of course, nobody really wants communism, um, do we? And he actually said, uh, no, I think the important part, that Kyosan, that, you know, Tomoni, Seisan Suru, producing things together uh, is the most wonderful part. So he, you know, there he was actually embracing communist ideas and uh i don't know about practice um but yeah so then in response to that some liberal journalist or other was like why well, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean production uh, why why does communism have anything to do with production uh, here's a definition from you know iwanami whatever dictionary you know uh and it says uh you know tomi no sai bunpai right it, it's to, to in order to uh, even out differences in society, that wealth is redistributed. That's what communism is. So even in a dictionary in Japan, uh, you can't find a dictionary that will tell you correctly that, uh, I don't know if you can't find it, but anyway, in that very mainstream dictionary, that it's telling you uh, this liberal redefinition that it's about redistribution of wealth, right?
yeah that's it's very deeply entrenched so it's 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 interesting right um it's a kind of fascism right sasakawa ryoichi said i am the world's richest fascist and he was one of the builders of post-war japan he's one of the the ones that will be behind the powerful politicians that uh will be the reason for the existence of this other main character in this story which is a geisha and while this priest is going about his daily life uh this priest with whom the narrator has a big big old crush big old japanese housewife crush on this priest and that priest is dealing with uh young communists among the parishioners among the young male parishioners you know the with the economic downturn you know they they came oh, i don't know something about you know they weren't paying them their wages properly or something they couldn't feed their families i don't know some bullshit like that um there is this moment where uh you know that is mentioned and there's a kind of you know oh that's too bad we all have to work together you know it's very class collaboration is being recommended here ultimately right one of the one of the little sermons that the priest gives talks about when when man and man try to work together god is always blesses this and uh you know this is where you should do right but god does not make any distinctions between so no class warfare no don't think about you know your working class or whatever um and, but he lets the young activists give speeches at the young men's association and explain what they're doing but the narrator doesn't tell us what they said they just say oh it's a good thing that catholics are so used to hearing boring sermons uh because they could hear they could listen sit they, they had no trouble therefore sitting through this uh communist boring speech about you know rah, 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 can't pay us our wages we can't eat rah, rah, rah. This has been a preview of a premium episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. Uh, to hear the entire episode and all of our back catalog there, you can go to patreon.com slash irregnata. That's unruled in Latin feminine singular. And for the low proletarian price of 333 you can become uh, a member of the Kingless Generation. You get access to the Discord server. And uh, I hope I'll see you on there.